Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. As always, I'm your host, Steve Opolinik. Really excited that you guys are coming out and listening to the stuff we're putting out. Uh, Our downloads and subscriptions have increased over the last couple of months, and we're really happy that you're giving us a listen and listening to the guests that we have come on every two weeks and, and really showing that putting people's messages out there with some insight and some knowledge and wisdom attached is really paying off. So if you're new to this, hit the subscribe button, leave us a review. um, Just kind of connect with us through any platform that you listen to podcasts, because the more reviews and subscriptions and uh, ratings that we get, our podcast will actually show up in searches and and get more listeners to, to really help us get people's messages out there. And I think, what we're realizing now is we need that community to help deal with some incredible stuff that's going on and help build resilience and and help everyone follow through and support each other as a village and as human beings. So that being said, our guest today on episode 36 is Dr. Holly McGinnis. I connected with Holly through a mutual friend, Brenna Rogers. You'll hear us make fun of Brenna a little bit in this podcast, so hopefully she's listening to this. Um, but more so, once Brenna gave me the information about Holly, I was really excited to talk to her because there's there's a lot of information in the podcast about mindfulness, about looking at a different perspective in life, looking at different situations that occur, and not always having a negative reaction, but you know, processing that emotion, sitting with that emotion, and then moving forward and looking at some beneficial things that come from this. We also talk about mental health in young kids and resilience building. And we also talk about how good parenting, especially in this time of COVID, is about being present and acknowledging and validating the needs of our children. And Holly actually had had a great example of this come up in the podcast you'll notice later in the podcast there's a an awkward pause and i kept it in on purpose because as we were talking about the very thing about being present and and parenting her kids came in yelling and screaming because there was a bee that was in the living room and she had to stop the podcast and go help her kids handle the situation and uh, she came back really quickly it was actually a really good example of practicing what she preached, but you'll hear it in here. And I wanted to include it, include it in the introduction because I thought it was so pertinent to what we're talking about. So without further ado, here's Dr. Holly McGinnis. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. 
Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Holly McGinnis. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for inviting me, Steve. And we were talking a little bit before this. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't record our actual first introduction. This is our second go at it. But um, before I forgot to record, uh, we we're talking about our mutual friend, Rena Rogers, who is responsible for having Holly on the podcast. So we want to thank her. And Holly's known her since she was nine, so I'm sure we're going to have some fun stories about Brenna, some joking, uh, some awesomeness, but more importantly, we get to meet Holly and, and really talk about her passions, what she does, and her life story, and how she's gotten to where she is today. I'm looking forward to it. So, Holly, do you think you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. So, my name is Holly McGinnis. I'm also known as Yihua um, Young, which is my Korean birth name. I was adopted from South Korea when I was three and a half years old uh, into a wonderful Irish Catholic family, uh, the McGinnises. And I grew up about 45 minutes north of New York City, and Brenna became my next door neighbor at the age of nine. Um, and for the most part, you know, I didn't grow up much thinking about my identity um, until I started, went to college. And um, uh, this is where Brenna's story will come in. So somehow, uh, Brenna and seven of our girlfriends convinced our parents our senior year of high school to let us go to Disney World um, all by ourselves. So we went and um, we went to Epcot and I remember going to China and um, having people speak to me in Chinese and I went to go buy something in Japan and they told me it in Japanese. And then I looked at my friends who were of Irish ancestry and German ancestry and I was just like, why isn't anybody walking up to you and speaking in German and Celtic and stuff like that? Right. But that was kind of that moment of like, hmm, people are seeing something else besides Holly McGinnis. And so when I started college, I thought that I would major in Asian studies because it seemed that people were expecting that if you had an Asian face, you knew everything about um, uh, Asian countries. And I didn't know that much. I mean, I always grew up knowing that I was from Korea. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, uh, but that was about it. But then when I was a sophomore in college, I realized that I was just trying to fulfill a racial stereotype that if you are Asian, you know how to speak all these languages and stuff like that. And I said, no, no, no. Um, I want to figure out how I'm an American with this Irish last name, um, uh, blonde hair mom, and my Korean face. So I switched my major to American studies, and I really okay. ended up um, studying 20th century American race uh, history. Um, and I did a senior thesis that was looking at um, the uh, ethnic and racial identity of other women who were adopted from Korea um, and who were in college. So I was basically studying myself with other folks. And um, doing that work, I, I learned about the history of international adoption, uh, especially to the United States. And I also learned that um, there was about 180,000 of us um, adopted just from Korea, um, yeah. the Korean War, um, with um, thousands of others adopted from other countries as well. Um, and I kind of tucked all that information into my head <laughs> and I graduated from college. Uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Right. And then um, about two years out of college, I'm living in New York City, um, and I am participating in a, a leadership seminar. And um, that was um, 
being run by Landmark Education. And in the leadership seminar, self-expression and leadership, they said, uh, look at your communities and build a project. So that had me think uh, back to this adoption community that um, even though there were a lot of other um, people adopted and growing up, I always knew one or two other you know, people who had also been adopted. Um, I never really thought of them as a community, but I knew there was a lot of us. Um, and so at this time, it's uh, 1996, a lot of adoptions from China were happening. And I said, well, you know, um, maybe I could help this next generation of young people that are going to be growing up in families where they racially don't look the same. Right, yeah. And awesome. uh, so that, that became the seed. And I said, yeah, you know, I think growing up, it might have been helpful for me. Um, if I had had uh, somebody else who had a family that was kind of complicated, that <laughs> 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 didn't fit in anything, you know. Right. And so I um, I started a mentorship program and um, and I started a nonprofit organization and it's called also known as, uh, and it's still going strong. We'll be celebrating our 25th um, anniversary next That's year. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. So it's one of those things that, that when I was in college and you told me that I would start a nonprofit, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but it's those like magic things when you kind of let yourself um, experience and be in life and, and have your questions kind of take you where they're going to lead you. Um, and so, you know, through also known as I got to meet um, so many adoptive families. And uh, again, this is 1996. So the internet is only just starting to be used. I think everyone was on AOL if they did anything. Yeah, and so it was, um, it was an, you know, old fashioned time to have to find people who one, I had to find people who were adults and adopted to become mm -hmm. mentors. And then I had to find the kids <laughs> to mentor. And so lots of conversations. I have a really funny memory of um, being in New York City. Again, I was living down there. And I went to the Asian Heritage Festival and was in, right out uh, outside of Lincoln Center and going from table to table saying, hi, I'm trying to start this organization for people who've been adopted <laughs> internationally. Do you know anyone who might be adopted? <laughs> <laughs> really doing the groundwork and the legwork. To, yeah, to really, really. And because there wasn't like a Google to just Google <laughs> people who are adopted or not after groups. Um, and, uh, and we ended up forming a really wonderful organization there, um, you know, in the eighties, in the nineties, um, uh, adoption agencies were beginning to shift some of their philosophy, um, and really encouraging adoptive families to keep, um, especially international adoptees, um, some sort of connection with their uh, birth cultures. So there were right. culture camps and there were organizations, um, led by adoptive parents too, um, who wanted to keep in contact, you know, uh, with other families that were similar. And, but for me growing up in the seventies, they just, there wasn't that many. And I even asked my mom, uh, I said, were there groups like this? She's like, oh yeah, maybe there were some, but you know, I thought that was for families who had problems. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Not realizing that like community, it, you know, you don't have to have a problem to connect right, <laughs> to community. No. Um, so through also known as, um, I did a lot of community organizing. I had a day job. I was working at JP Morgan, you know, and, um, I 
began to think that I wanted to go back to school for something. And again, um, I always thought that I wanted to help people. Mm-hmm. So as uh, in college, I did all of the pre-med stuff. <laughs> um, they thought, thinking I wanted to be a doctor, even took the MCATs and then I was like, I don't think I want to be a doctor. <laughs> I don't know why I couldn't have thought that before I took the MCATs, but. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you know. got those under your belts got just in case you ever want to go back. <laughs> Yeah, and so again, doing all this community organizing, and I got to, um, you know, meet with other adoptees, and some of, of whom had become social workers. And I, I said, "Huh, I what, what is this social work?" Right. <laughs> I hadn't really known. My father was a clinical psychologist, so he knew social workers, but he never uh, talked to me about it. You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, the thing that finally led me to um, bite the bullet and get my master's in social work was. Um, also known as had an opportunity to bring uh, adult adoptees back to Korea for a motherland trip. And that was in 2000. And I had gone to Korea a number of times since 1996. And um, so I was kind of guiding folks. And we went to an orphanage. And that was the first time I had stepped into an orphanage. And it was a baby's home. So this was in South Korea. And so all the children were six and under. And I, um, you know, I observed how the kids were interacting with me me, and I was a counselor too, you know, you know, as a, in high school and something was off, I could tell. And I just was left thinking, um, what happens to these children, you know, that stay here and grow up here. And that was kind of the tipping point then that I wanted to do something, um, because I felt like there was this moment where all the little children were sitting around the lunch table and then all of us adoptees sat around that same table. And I just had this moment of like, oh, these children were us at one point in time. Right. Um, and so that really motivated me then to go and get my master's of social work. And um, at that time I was interested in changing things at a policy level. I, um, I, uh, wasn't really interested as, to be a therapist, but I um, appreciated the uh, social work approach to policy and that it would be informed by direct practice. So I went to Columbia School of Social Work. Um, and then when I finished, I, I realized I still wanted to understand more of how families were, uh, what they were struggling with, um, that sort of thing. So I got a, a post-MSW clinical fellowship at the Yale Child Study Center. And I did that for a year, fell in love with clinical work uh, with adolescents and families and young kids. And uh, we saw a lot of children who had um, involvement in the child welfare system domestically. Um, Was convinced that that was what I was going to then do. I was going to be a clinician. And then I got a job at the Donaldson Adoption Institute, which was a um, nonprofit policy think tank in New York City. So I ended up doing that instead. <laughs> so I ended up doing macro work for a good five years. And then I realized that so much of policy was being driven by research. And the research I thought was kind of old and was always asking the questions that I had heard from other adoptees and adoptive families. And so I decided that I wanted to build the knowledge base then uh, to build policy. And so I returned to school, got my PhD um, from Washington University in St. Louis. I also got to go back and study the adult, uh, the kids um, in the orphanages in South Korea. So my dissertation was looking at the mental health and school outcomes of adolescents growing up in institutional care in Korea. Um, uh, and was able to spend a year and a half there on a Fulbright and a couple other grants. 
Um, and now I am a professor, assistant professor of social okay. work at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Awesome. That's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic story. I mean, like there's so much to pull from to, to kind of talk about trying to figure out where I want to start. I think probably the first part is, is something that comes through in your story that's really amazing. It's just the passion that you have, right? Mm -hmm. And how, how you've kind of let passion guide your decisions. You, you said a number of times, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And then you're like, no, nah, it doesn't really connect. It doesn't connect to, to what I feel. And you were able to kind of to switch, right, from Asian studies to American culture to you know, building a nonprofit that, that was more personal to you. And then, you know, all these transitions. So you've, you've let life kind of guide you. And it seems like it, it's been really beautiful for you to, to go through that process. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have at any point, any reservations about any of that? I'm sure you did. And so it's kind of a redundant question, but I'm wondering <laughs> if you would want to talk a little bit about how you, you could see them and then like how you were able to kind of make a decision that was generative to, to your future? Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, um, it was, so, you know, that, that's like my official narrative. Yeah. <laughs> and then the subtext narrative <laughs> of what moved me from one thing to another um, is, a, is, I think, a more raw and personal, you know? And so when I think about, um, you know, in those different spaces, I learned different things. So when I was working professionally at JP Morgan, I realized, my God, eight hours a day, five days a week, doing something that I really don't care about, <laughs> this is not working for me, you know? But mm -hmm. the money was great. Like, I'm only just making what I made, <laughs> you know, way back then. And so that was really, so the dis-ease, you know, was just yeah. as much of a motivator as kind of like, oh, this is maybe something that I want to do. And I, I like your point that um, I really let my questions kind of guide me. And I didn't always know where they would necessarily take me. Um, and I think that's part of um, the adventure of living. Right. I think that when we only allow ourselves to live in the lanes that we know, we don't allow the gifts of the universe to come our way uh, and open us and stretch us, which is uncomfortable, yeah, <laughs> you know, very uncomfortable. We are all being stretched right now in a big way by the universe. <laughs> in many different directions, I'd say, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, and right. And we are being invited to do things differently, um, you know. And so, again, there has always been a slightly reckless part of me. And then there's always been a very, like, logical part of me. And, um, uh, you know, I, I was a fine artist, actually. And I almost went to college to do art, you know. But then I chickened out. Like, I was like, oh, I'm not good enough. So I'll go to a <laughs> college. And I went to Mount Holyoke instead, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I always like to think that I kind of traded in my paintbrushes for writing. So writing is now my, my major creative outlet as is photography and some other things. But, um, but I, I think it's, it's scary sometimes to like step off into the unknown, but I'll tell you that that's where the magic can happen. Right. And so when, um, you know, going back um, to, to like school, again, that wasn't, a totally straight shot. Like I actually started another master's program at NYU that was an interdisciplinary um, 
humanities thing. And I just, you know, I took one class. It was really interesting, but I was like, this has not anything to do with life. (laughs) 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 Like this is great to know about like, you know, I don't know. It was like post-colonial studies or something like that. But I, you know, I finished a class and I said, thank you very much. I enjoyed that, but this is not a good fit for me. And I think that- (laughs) It's a good way to put it. Ah, peace out. This doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there, I struggled a lot um, those two years after college because I had thought I was going to go to medical school. And then I just like, I didn't know. I just didn't know. I got a job at a publishing house, you know, and then that yeah. led to a job at a state more, you know, but then all of this other stuff started to happen that was led by other, you know, encounters and stuff. And then even when I, um, you know, left the Donaldson Adoption Institute, Part of the motivation for that, too, was I really got to see the politics around um, child welfare and around adoption, and um, and I wanted to figure out my own voice and my own opinion, and I had to, um, you know, work, you know, as part of the agency, but I really wanted to have more intellectual freedom. So, again, that was another reason that a PhD um, it was an, a way to escape and 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 do some of that thinking that I, I wanted to do, um, and then um, and and now I've been kind of struggling too because I kind of was like, okay, I got my PhD, I'm done. Now what am I doing as a professor? Who <laughs> who am I? So I do feel like you know the the question of identity is always shifting and moving, and I think. Um, you know, I, I've been fortunate in that I have been able to have the resources and means to shift um, uh, as I felt was necessary for me. And I know that a lot of people don't have that kind of uh, freedom. Um, right. But um, but even now, I think um, I think we're all being asked, you know, who are we? <laughs> what is your 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 work, your life, this life, the world? What is it all about? Right. You know, and and um, especially given that we have had you know this pandemic that's like disrupting everything, <laughs> um, so we can either cling on to what we know is familiar or begin to venture out and and really start to explore what other possibilities might be there. Yeah, and I think it's funny because I was talking to my wife and she she had a really valid point about some of this stuff with the pandemic and. I said, hey, do you remember when we were younger and we'd be so excited about something and we were, oh, I just want to fast forward to that event and they don't have to worry about the in-betweens. And I said, sometimes I feel like I just want to fast forward to the end of the coronavirus. Like, I just want to get through, like, I know, it's, you know, people are debating this, but it's going to be a while before we have some, some clarity on some of this stuff. I just want to get to that point, right? Yeah. And she she looked at me and she said, yeah, I get it. But also there's a loss of time there that's really valuable. And who knows what will happen in that time. We don't want to discount this this time because even though some serious stuff is, is happening, there's some really strong currents of, of rebirth or, or redirection. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think when, you, when you're going through something tough, whether it's systemic, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's just personal in nature that we oftentimes try to avoid those feelings or the, those situations and something I talk about all the time but even in when you're not um, cognizant about it it kind of creeps back in 
And so I think what you're saying is, is perfect, right? We're, we're being stretched and that can be uncomfortable, but also it's only uncomfortable for a period of time and it becomes worse if we just hold on to the past or how things have done and becomes more generative if we're able to kind of see it as it is. And so that just reminded me so much of that conversation. And yeah. so I thought it was it's very apropos that, you know, we're having this conversation. Yes, um, yes. And, yeah. you know, I think as the pandemic and the uncertainty stretches ever longer, you know, we know with like, you know, adverse childhood experiences, it's the cumulative effect. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> Not definitely. a single thing. And as the time accumulates, we are, we are going, you know, it's like you're stretched for that much longer. But I think the exciting part of that is that that means that we're not going to naturally snap back to exactly where we are. We will, this will have been transformative. Yeah. And either you're going to be fighting it, you know, or just kind of flowing with it and exploring. And I think, um, I, I practice yoga and I, my yoga teachers always say, find your edge, find your edge. I'm like, what edge? I'm like, oh, I think I passed it. I fell off <laughs> the edge, you know? Went <laughs> too far. Yeah. And so, so again, I, I've just really, because life has had to slow down so much, um, like, you know, the activities going outside and walking around my backyard <laughs> like life gets really small and really but you notice so much things so many more things too and i think yeah. that was it you know what i've experienced is that as i've been rushing and rushing to accomplish this and that and and whatever you know um i i truly have stopped not stopped to smell the roses you know and that like my gosh when we do like it's so beautiful <laughs> yeah and I mean I think it's so like so if we're talking about nature I think it's so grounding too to take your your shoes off and your socks off and just walk in that by, backyard no matter how big or small it is and notice the sense I mean it's mindfulness right like it's it's that practice of being present and not feeling forced to go everywhere and I think it's really a key component when with working with youth like we both do and talking about some of that research and then also you know, I have a five-year-old and when I think about this time, I she knows what's going on to an extent, but I also want her to look back and be like, well, you, you know, dad, mom, and I went for a walk every day. Yeah. And some days we'd find new stuff and sometimes we'd play lion guard while, we, <laughs> while we're walking. But I, I want her to look back on those memories and find some really pleasant memories because we have that time together. We can slow down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, as we're facing, you know, possibly the whole rest of this year and into the next year, um, we, we need to give ourselves some of the um, um, emotional uh, grace and patience and kindness. So uh, next week, we'll VCU's classes start and I've decided my intention for my students is that they will learn and it will be rigorous and my approach is to approach it with kindness patience and compassion <laughs> um, and I, I really feel like that approach is what we need in in this world that's right. so hyper competitive that is you know, so hyper-performative, that is so striving for something that we'll never get to. There's never a finish line to that one, you know? No, yeah. um, and again, maybe it's a product of my own age, <laughs> you know, that, that like, I just, you know, that rat race, I, I, I did it and it's not fulfilling. Um, 
and again, how do we teach and give experiences to our kids so, so that they also learn that it's not always about the A, but it is the process and, and that the journey is the learning, uh, not the grade at the end. <laughs> right. And, and I think that's missed sometimes if, if you look at some educational systems that are around, it's, it's rigor, rigor, rigor. And, you know, one of the things, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you and have you come on, especially about is, is how does, how, how do sometimes those systemic things like rigor affect childhood? And then also how do we, how do we start shifting from that? And so what you're talking about is, is, is some of that is where do we stand with that? Especially with the pandemic, how do, how do we kind of take this as an opportunity to really look at on how we can help the youth through it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the way that I've started to really, you know, process just in my own uh, thinking and then, you know, thinking around research and literature and that sort of stuff as well um, is, is, is really learning how to be mindful. And the thing with mindfulness or meditation is that you can, you cannot own your way <laughs> out of this situation, you know? Um, and so I think sometimes people think, oh, I'm gonna meditate and then I'll like, you know, not be thinking what I'm thinking or not feeling what I'm feeling. But right. meditation is actually being intimately present to all of your thoughts and all of your emotions right right here right now and um i had a interesting personal crisis in january where i found that i had a very early stage breast cancer so uh, i started radiation treatment in march right at the time that my university was at spring break and by the end of that week we were not going back <laughs> so uh, I was sharing to, with some folks that it's like, you know, life keeps happening as the pandemic was happening too, you know, and right. in the weird way that uh, going for my radiation treatment to treat my cancer suddenly became like an outing <laughs> in the context of a pandemic. And I started to look forward to them because <laughs> I got to get out of the house and see other people besides my family and my right, kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I saw or processed, you know, in, in realizing that um, in confronting my own mortality because of uh, cancer, uh, that I had a choice, that I could approach um, kind of this adversity in my life the way that I treated a lot of my adversities, which is to put on my armor, be really strong, really tough, you know, not let anybody know that I'm actually going through all of this stuff, you know, and, uh, or I could put my armor down and I could feel everything that I was feeling. Um, and I could let people in. Right. And that approach to living was not something that I had done. <laughs> But with the cancer diagnosis, it was so overwhelming. I knew the armor wasn't thick enough. Um, and so I made the choice to put it down. I, and I made the choice to let people know. I made the choice to write and journal and share it with other folks. Because I realized I'm not the only one who's gone through something that is life-threatening um, right. and destabilizing and scary. Um, and in practicing that and vulnerability, I, I realized that, um, 
there were all of these emotions <laughs> that because I felt like I had to wear armor, I never let myself feel. Right. Um, and um, I think uh, Brene Brown, um, I don't know if you know of her work. Yeah, I do, she, yeah. Yeah, but you know, she said her spot on. I mean, she, she, she studies vulnerability. <laughs> and she says the only way to true courage is through vulnerability. And, um, and again, I, I feel like, yes, I had this very personal thing, but we are uh, as a world going through <laughs> vulnerability. And again, we can either allow ourselves to feel everything or we could continue to block it all, all right. out, pretend it's not happening. But the breakthrough is in the vulnerability because then that's true courage. And then we understand like all of our humanity that we're all in the same boat. And that was the thing that I would have been returning to you just again and again, like we are all humans, we, we are all suffering. We are all you know, trying our best and have the best intentions. And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. <laughs> in a world and leadership that wants to divide us all and you know just highlight what makes us quote different which are all just surface things you know so um so how do you how do you approach all of this well you know I, again i think it all it does start with us and our own willingness to feel what we're feeling and have trusted people that we can share those feelings with because that's very important too you know right. and i think a lot of us feel things but we don't know the words or we don't have the skill or we don't have any modeling on on how to safely give voice to those expressions and certainly you know that was a lot of the therapeutic work that i did with young people was just giving them words you know um with the folks that i uh were adopted transracially it was just to give them words to have a family that doesn't look like you and how do you explain that <laughs> you know right. yeah. um, and then how do you transform what is always different <laughs> you know to a strength and i think that was um my own breakthrough that I wanted to share with other folks was realizing that the struggles that I had around my racial identity were really constructed by society who wanted to put me into a box. I didn't fit the white box and I didn't fit the Asian box. <laughs> and I tried both of them, you know, like I, yeah. I remember going to Korean Student Association meetings and I'm like, okay, I didn't grow up on kimchi and rice, so that doesn't fit. And then <laughs> you know, I go into my white spaces and culturally I'm like very comfortable there, but I don't look like them, you know, right. and I don't have the, the privileges of whiteness because I don't look white. <laughs> mm. um, and, and so I'm like, well, that doesn't fit either. And just realizing, then that the question who am I can only by, be answered by our declaration who I am and so I then was like this is who I am and I'm going to tell you and you can figure out and be uncomfortable but you know um, but I'm going to claim it <laughs> um, because this is my truth and the truth is I am culturally white I am racially Asian <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that's the truth that's the truth <laughs> I think that's I think that's beautifully said, and I also want to thank you for being vulnerable and, and, and sharing about your own personal um, story with with cancer and and I think it's fantastic how you're able to go, ah an outing I get to go out and and be away because you know we're all thinking about it. I think my wife and and my daughter and I bought something from Target just for curbside pickup to, to have an outing for like an hour or two <laughs> during the day. And okay. just, it was like a mini waffle maker. It was 10 bucks, <laughs> but it was, it was fantastic. It was a fantastic day to, 
I know. Yeah. And I think that, I think what it is showing us is, is like, there is so much joy in the littlest things, but we're always looking for the big thing. It's like, exactly. the joy can only be that trip to the Bahamas, <laughs> you know? But you just discovered true joy can be stopping a target to get a yep. waffle maker. Get a waffle maker. <laughs> and we use that waffle maker every morning for homemade waffles. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's one of the best, I, I'd say the best thing we've picked up during the pandemic <laughs> is this Yeah. But it's really true. And we're inundated with social media and Instagram and influencers and all this stuff. And, and we see only half of a life of someone and it's glamorous. And we're like, we need that. I, I need to be on that beach. I, I need to be doing yoga in Dubai and with all these beautiful sands and all this stuff. But you know, like that, that stuff that's hard to accomplish. And if we're only looking at that stuff, we're missing a million and one other things in between that could be bringing us real joy, real positive joy every single day. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, and again, that's where our minds are always out there, (laughs) you know, and we have so many things out there to distract us that it is really hard to even come in within and say, Hey, what, what am I enjoying right now? You know, because you're like, just looking out, looking out, looking out. And, um, and again, this stillness of like, you don't have anywhere to go. You're like, you get up and you go from your bedroom to your kitchen, to your office, to your kitchen, you know, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, and the confines it, um, and again, it, you know, and, and I, I think about people who are in homes that aren't even safe, you know, right, so exactly. I mean, the, the struggles. And, and so I, I very, much of conscious of my privilege of the space and and that I have that I can do this um and I think that um we all are still struggling and so you know part of it also is about again just in, in the same way that you you are always invited to claim your identity you don't let, have to let other people tell you who you are you have to be able to also claim the space for your happiness um, and for your joy. Um, and, you know, whatever that is, I, I, um, um, I, I, sh- I share some tips for parenting through COVID that I was observing through my own struggle. So I have a 12 year old and a five year old. And every time it seemed like I would just settle down to get a little bit of work and the five year old would come in, you know, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God you know and it was like it was this constant reaction like he would come in he needed orange juice suddenly you know now he needed apple juice and it was like ah and I realized finally that all he wanted he didn't want the apple juice he didn't no. want the orange juice he wanted me and so when I that light bulb went off because I wasn't with him I was annoyed I was like don't you know I have work to do like that was my beingness but he just wanted me to see him and so when I stopped and realized like that was what he wanted and when I gave him the orange juice and he would come in and interrupt and I looked at him and I asked him and I just was with him for two minutes, he went away for like yeah. 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like He didn't come back because he got what he wanted, which was my presence. And, um, and again, we have such a distracted society and culture with our phones and stuff like that, that we're sitting with somebody, but we're looking at our phone. We're not present, you know, and little kids really, really pick up on that. So they know it. (laughs) You can't fool them. (laughs) They are a truth meter. Um, but the more that I just, uh, you know, again, gave up 
some of my agenda, <laughs> you know, and my need to schedule and control and put into right. boxes like the, the, the flow of the day. And I, I gave myself grace to like, if I was tired, I stepped away. If I needed to do a walk around the house and time out, then husband came in, <laughs> you know, um, but that allowed me to be more present to my child too, and be able to actually notice what it was that they wanted, which wasn't the thing, it was me. Right. It's that connection, going back to that, that first conversation, you don't need a problem to connect, right? It's, it's all about that connection, and you're right, kids will pick up on that when, when you're just, ah, go, go, go along your business, I'm doing so. Yeah. I was really scared to work with adolescents when I was training at the Yale Child Study Center. And, um, and what I realized was, because, uh, you know, what made me uncomfortable is that adolescents, they're truth meters too. And yeah. they can see through adult bullshit, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> um, you know, like a laser. And, uh, and that's why they make grownups really uncomfortable because we have created so much armor, so much pretendness, <laughs> knowledge and expertise or whatever like that. And teenagers, young kids, they see right through it and they yeah. see you, your humanness. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And I, and I think I do a lot of introspection on myself when I'm working with adolescents to kind of say, what am I feeling after this session? Or if they're coming in, like, you know, and I'm, not looking forward to the session. What, what, what is that from? And a lot of times it's a me thing and it's not a them thing because I'm projecting some of my stuff and I have to work to resolve that. And usually once I do that, like we have a fantastic session. Mm -hmm. Like that's usually when the breakthrough sessions are because I let go of myself. I'm vulnerable in that, that moment that armors down and they can sense it. Yes. And to ask someone to connect with you, they're not going to do it if you have armor up or if you hide behind, I'm the professional or you can't know too much about me. Right. Yes. And I think, I think it goes back to what you were saying and, and kind of mimics how you teach mindfulness anyways, is, you know, it's, it's a hierarchy, right? And so the first step is to practice your own practice of vulnerability or mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And that can sow the seeds for the people you're working with or your kids or whoever's in your life. And then the, that that tipping point at the top only until you go through these levels is that where it's actually creating mindfulness for that teaching them direct mindfulness because they get exposed to it and they can sense it yeah exactly. or vulnerability too you know so i think it's through actions and i think that's one of the reasons i love counseling and being a male therapist because i see a lot of male adolescents and you know, a lot of times I'll wear a pink shirt or I'll wear whatever shirt that like speaks to me that day. And they were like, really, dude? And <laughs> my response was like, yeah, man, I, ha I have no care about any of that, that yeah. machismo stuff. And then mm -hmm. we have a really good conversation about it because mm -hmm. when they first meet me, they think I'm a biker because I have a, a beard and tattoos all up my arm. And so <laughs> it's been a really, really strong blessing for me mm -hmm. to to sit in that position and hold that space for some some young Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as, as healers and helpers, you know, I, I don't buy into the wounded healer <laughs> um, <laughs> thing at all. You, you need to just be always working on your own healing and wellness um, because then you're really modeling uh, what true healing is. Okay. I hope Perfect. you are editing. <laughs> 
Yes, I will edit. And, and okay. most of the podcast is not video anyway. So okay, we'll use a small clip of okay. the, the video for a teaser. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My kids are petrified of bees. And apparently there was one in the living room. And so, uh, yeah. <laughs> it goes back to exactly what we were talking about, is taking that second, that pause, connecting, <laughs> resolving the issue, and then moving forward. Yep, giving them some solution. <laughs> I'm like, go up to the living room or bedroom, close the door. You'll be okay. You're gonna be safe. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, so so Holly, it's been amazing to talk to you. I, I I'm gonna have to send Brenna something as a thank you. <laughs> I'll probably send her a statue of a bird because I know she hates birds and it's the relationship <laughs> yes. we have. Um but before we go, I just have two quick questions I like ending the podcast with. And the, the first one is, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? And then the second one is, what do you think is your true superpower? Mm. Oh, those are hard questions. Okay, so um, I think if I could have any superpower... Um, maybe I would be like Professor Xavier, <laughs> the mental one, <laughs> telepathy, or, um, and I actually think that that is something, um, that I've been developing or trying to develop in some ways and shifting actually, I, I tend to be very, um, so I'm very emotional and cerebral and i've let most of my life be cerebral in the mind and i really am working on the heart and opening the heart and i feel like the heart can understand things that the mind just cannot because the mind is limited by words and language and so in that way i feel like the my own heart opening and allowing myself to feel everything that i am feeling is helping me to feel other people too Right. Just deepen my empathy and my understanding of of um, just our shared humanity and and really in in seeing that just like love. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Um, and you know, like like the heart is very similar to the brain in the sense of the neurons and the the pathways in the heart and how it connects to the nervous system. So, it makes sense, right? Like to open open up that center and really feel from there connects uh, with other people in so many different ways. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, again, our culture and our society rewards the mind and not the heart. Right. And again, that's the gendering of like feminine, soft heart, whatever. And I really feel in part that the antidote to kind of all of the hatred and hurt and, um, you know, perpetuation of all the isms. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, it is fear of letting other people share the space, you know, that somehow right. if I share with you, I lose my power, I lose who I am. And again, in just my own life and practice around um, being vulnerable, I realized that the more that you're vulnerable, the more you get back. <laughs> and that's yeah. been really profoundly humbling as well, um, just how generous people really are. So really being selfless is selfish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but it's true. Right? Like you, you get paid back for that, that vulnerability by 
connecting with people and, and fulfilling these relationships. And I think, mm-hmm. I know being in the field that we're in, I think that's, that's really good therapists. That's why they're doing it, right? Is to, to hold that space. And I think that's amazing. Right? And there's no greater gift than to be invited to bear witness to, to another person's life. I, I got a new nickname for you. I don't know if it will take take off. Um, maybe I'll try to get Brenna to call you that. But you, your new nickname is now Professor X of the Heart. <laughs> or your oh, superhero like name. I like that, right? <laughs> That's a great ring. <laughs> um, well, thank you again so much for coming on. It, it's an honor to talk to you. I, I love everything you're doing. And uh, so excited to have you on and, and to have people hear your story. Great. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, Please share with your friends. Please like our posts on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.